0: Ladies and gentlemen,
1: you are tuned into another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me, ladies and gentlemen. We have Dean Dillon returning for his second interview on the Paul Leslie Hour. Here in the year 2020, Dean Dillon has been inducted into the 2020 class of the Country Music Hall of Fame, the highest recognition in the world of country music. It's Dean Dillon who has been inducted along with Marty Stewart and Hank Williams Jr. He was a guest way back on episode number two of the show. I had my heart set on starting the show with a Dean Dillon interview early on, and now he is back. So, Dean Dillon, congratulations, sir.
0: Paul, thank you so much. You know, it's been quite a humbling experience, if you want to know the truth about it all. And to be inducted with two of my old friends, both Cephas and Marty, is just unbelievable. You know, and then the thing that gets me is when they first tell you, You know, that you're being inducted to the Hall of Fame. There's a million thoughts run through your mind. And then if you've ever been to the Hall of Fame and see all those bronze plaques on the walls of each person that's been inducted, it'll humble you pretty quick. And you start to have thoughts like, you know, am I worthy to be in this this Hall of Fame? And, you know, I I dare say just about everybody on that wall probably had the same thought. you know, but it's really mind blowing to me when they told me I didn't say nothing. I don't think for about three or four minutes because my life flashed before my,
1: (laughs) but yeah, it's what an honor. What an honor. Well, again, congratulations. It, It truly is the, the king of the, it's the king of the hill. It's the, it's the, the biggest thing there is you're you're there along with hank williams and willie nelson and and all the greats you were mentioning the the bronzes the plaques that are there what goes Mm -hmm. through your head when you think about where you started in music and now
0: it's been a long road (laughs) you know i've been doing this since i was I got my first guitar when I was seven years old. My mama bought me a Tiger Stripe Stella guitar. And I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. And I think 30 minutes later, I was in there beating on this guitar. Didn't really know how to play it. But writing down words to a song, you know. And I'm a true believer in, you know, when you're born, God gives you whatever gift, you know, he wants to give you. And for me to be a songwriter, you know, and do something that you actually just love to pieces, it's just been amazing. The rides have been amazing. You know, hit from hitchhiking from Oak Ridge, Tennessee to Nashville when I was 18 years old, weighed 130 pounds, soaking wet you know, to all these records later, you know, and then the relationship with people like Kenny Chesney, you know, he and I go a long way back, great friends, born and raised not that far from each other, wrote a lot of island songs with him by virtue of uh, being over there a lot. And, And from about 1980 to 84, I was with a guy named Hank Cochran, who's in the Hall of Fame. And we lived on a boat in the Bahamas called The Legend. And all we did was tool around the water and write songs. And that man treated me like his son, loved me to death, and uh, taught me everything, basically, or a lot of what I know about writing. You know, and his bar was extremely high when it came to writing songs. And uh, I just... Extremely grateful for that opportunity to write with somebody like Hank you know Hank wrote Make the World Go Away I Fall to Pieces A uh, Little Bitty tear Let Me Down just tons and tons of huge records and uh you know he he took me under his wing and uh taught me how to write great songs not good songs great songs and uh so thankful for it and then there's people like george Strait. you know what can i say since i think we wrote unwound in 1979 frank docus and i frank was the first songwriter that i met when i hitchhiked in nashville and he took me under his wing and and we were together for several years and uh, wrote a lot of great songs. As a matter of fact, I think we wrote six songs on George Strait's first album. And pretty much the reason we got so many is back in that day and era, you didn't give you know your best stuff to an unknown. And uh, I remember sitting on the front porch of Dykes' office on Music Row, popping tops on beer cans, and, and this kid... You know, pulls up to the curb, and it's Blake Mebus. And he says, I'm cutting a kid from Texas. wonder if y'all got any songs. And I said, well, who does he sound like? (laughs) And he said, well, he's kind of got his own thing going. And uh, I'd never heard, you know, I'd never heard any of his music. Didn't know who he was. And, you know, but as far as giving an unknown our songs, Docus had no problem with it, and neither did I when, you know, you're trying to get cuts, you know, as young as I was, and you're trying to get cuts on somebody, so we threw everything but the kitchen sink at him, and um, fortunately for us, his first single was a thing we wrote called Unwound, and then I think uh, Since My Woman Left, I'm Down and Out was his second single. He never had a hit, really, to, I think, his fourth single, which which was, if you're thinking you want a stranger, there's one coming home. And then I think right after that, we had a, or I had a hit on him called Nobody in His Right Mind and then uh, Marina Del Rey. And then it just, you know, picked up steam from there. The unique thing about our relationship was we were extremely and still are loyal to each other when it came to music. In other words, if I wrote something I thought was a great song, I pitched it to him first. Heck, I pitched Tennessee Whiskey to him first. And fortunately and unfortunately, he turned it down. He just didn't feel like it was the right song for him. And it probably wasn't, you know. Because once you put it in the hands of David Allen Coe, and then George Jones had a big record on it, Brad Paisley cut it about 10 years ago and put it on an album. And then five years ago, you know, one of the most astonishing things I've ever seen happened when Chris Stapleton put an R&B fill to the song and and, uh, sang it on the CMA Awards with Justin Timberlake, and it just exploded. And uh, they're getting back to George, you know, He would always, when he was cutting an album, he'd always call me and say, meet me in my office at 10 o'clock on Monday morning. And we did that for, and still do that, did that for years, you know? And then there's other people like Toby Keith, Scotty Emmerich, who's a fantastic songwriter. He's like my little brother. He kind of hooked me up with Toby. He said, man. Why don't you come out on the road, me and Toby must write some songs. And I did. And, you know, 30 cuts later on Toby Keith, it wasn't a bad relationship. And we had a big record together. It's a little too late, you know? And, um, Leanne Womack, what a voice, you know, it's just the opportunities that were afforded me to meet and write with these, these artists who are great writers. Themselves, you know, and it's just been such a huge, rewarding blessing.
1: Some really, really great stories here. I'm glad you brought up Tennessee Whiskey, the song. I've said a few times on the air that I believe it's the best country song there is. And somebody who caught the last interview we did, they called in and they said, Paul, shame on you. It's your favorite song. You didn't ask him about what inspired it. So now I have that chance. What inspired one of the greatest country songs ever, Tennessee Whiskey?
0: You know, I had heard about this songwriter by the name of Linda Hargrove. And she had written a couple big records for uh, Olivia Newton-John. One of them being, Is There Anybody Out There Who Can Shine? And then she had a few more hits on her, but I'd heard about her in Nashville and quite honestly, you know, I didn't know any girls at those songs. You know, there were some, but I didn't know any of them. So I decided to go see her play at the Bluebird in uh, Nashville one night and I get there and she does her set. And uh, after a set was over, I introduced myself to her. And uh, we got to talking, and I told her about this idea I had called Tennessee Whiskey. I think I had the course written to it. It was all I had. And uh, I asked her if she'd be interested in finishing up with me. She said, sure. So we took off to her house, but not for what everybody thought we were going for but got to her house at 4 o'clock in the morning and sat there and wrote that song in about an hour, hour and a half. And uh, like I said, you know, I pitched it to George and he turned it down. And then uh, David Allen called me, David Allen Grove. said, man, I want you to hear my cut on your song. And I drove up to his house in Hendersonville. And David, quite honestly, had a great record on it. And then uh, I think it was... Not long after that, maybe a year or so, that Billy Sherrill, the producer, uh, cut it on George Young. And it languished at number two in the charts for six weeks. i pick up billboard charts, number two. Six weeks in a row it did that. All because of a song called, If I Said You Had a Beautiful Body, Would You Hold It Against Me? and man you couldn't turn a radio on any station without that song playing it was so hot david and howard you know just hit a grand slam with it and it kept us out of number one for the longest time and finally i think the seventh week we got in one week at number one but You know, I don't begrudge the Bellamy Brothers anything because those guys are insanely, incredibly talented. And great guys, too. Just wonderful people. So that's really the story behind that, you know. And and about five years ago, I get a call from a, a friend of mine named Ronnie Bowman. And Ronnie is the Elvis of bluegrass. If you've ever been to, the, been to the Bluegrass Awards or seen the Bluegrass Awards on television, you're going to see Ronnie Bowman. Incredible talent. And he and I had been writing a bunch together in a little more slanted country, obviously. I'm not much of a grasser. But uh, but anyway, he he called me up, and I picked up the phone. And he's got his phone stuck to a speaker in a studio. And they played me Chris Stapleton singing Tennessee whiskey. And I was floored. (laughs) I loved it. I absolutely loved the way he did it, you know, and Stapleton is scary. Good singer and writer, you know, Chris had written a bunch of number one records for other artists before he really got, you know, his own deal and took off. But to show you how powerful that version was of Stapleton's, they had put that song out in June of that year, and between June and the CMA Awards, they'd sold 30,000 records. Between the night that he performed it on the CMA Awards with Justin Timberlake, from that night till the first of the year, And those awards are usually held, you know, right around November, first part of November. From that night till the first of the year, it sold a million records in, in like a month and a half. And I think it's the last, I was told it's over six million sold. And in this day and age, that's pretty incredible. But it's, you know, again, I go back to Stapleton. His voice is just incredible. I remember the first time I uh sat down and did a rider's night with him. I really didn't know what I was getting into. Leanne Momack called me and said, Hey, I want you to come and play a rider's night me, rider's night for me at this uh CMA fest. And I said, Sure. I had no idea he was gonna be on the show. And I get there and it's she and I and Stapleton. And somebody else, I think maybe Carrie Kirk Phillips, yeah, I can't remember all of it, but when he opens his mouth and sang and I'm up next, you know, I'm going to follow him, well, he sings a song and I'm like sliding under my table, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to, you know, when that guy sings, it's being sung when this old cowboy here sings, It's a good stab at it, if you know what I mean. But uh, just an incredible, incredible talent. And he and his wife are, again, are two of the most special people in the world. Just beautiful people. You know, and I've just been so fortunate to get to hang out with people like that, you know, writing songs.
1: Would you say that that Stapleton recording of Tennessee Whiskey, would you say that that is the cover of one of your songs that surprised you the most?
0: Oh, yeah. Absolutely. But, you know, I'll say this. There's been very few times in my life that someone has recorded one of my songs and I didn't like it. And uh, I think that's happened about once. And I'm not going to name any names. (laughs) But... You know, I think everybody was kind of thinking, well, what's he going to think of this uh, R&B version of it? And But what a lot of people didn't know is when I was in high school, I was doing a TV show in Knoxville, Tennessee, called Jim Clayton Star Time, and uh, did that all through high school. And what that did was it afforded me the money to go – to the Civic Auditorium in Knoxville and see people like Roger Daltrey and The Who, the Winters Brothers, Allman Brothers. If they had a hint and they played Knoxville, I was usually there. And then one night I went and uh, this guy got up on stage with him and a guitar by the name of James Taylor and I flipped out. And I thought, man, if you could take those type melodies and uh, Pair them with great country lyrics, you'd have something special. And that influence is pretty evident in songs like "Marina Del Rey" and "The Chair." You know, he was James was a heavy influence on me melodically, and uh, just been a whirlwind.
1: There's one song of yours that I've always had a real fondness for, and. It's an interesting song. I'm hoping you can tell us about Set Em Up, Joe.
0: Set 'Em Up, Joe, and play walk in the floor. <laughs> Hank and I had come back from the Bahamas and uh, taken a little respite. And I got back there, and I was in the Nashville Palace one night, which is a a bar, hung out in a lot of bars back in those days. And I hear this guy singing and my head swung around and I thought, man, this guy is incredible. And it was Vern Gosden. And when his set was over, I walked up to him, introduced myself and I said, man, you got a record deal? And he goes, no had one out in LA with my cousin, but, um, I don't know. I said, well, if anybody needs one, you need one. And I called Hank Cochran and I said, Hank, you got to get down here and hear this guy. And Hank's response was right now. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, right now. So he came down and, and uh, and, uh, Listened to a set of Vern's, and, you know, he was like-minded with me as far as the obvious talent the guy had singing. And so three days later, Vern, myself, and Hank were standing in front of Bob Montgomery of Capitol Records, and Vern sang Bob three songs, and uh, Bob gave him a record deal and then looked at me and Hank and said, I don't know where it is you all go Rockies." it's that, but you need to take Vern with you and go write me an album. <laughs> and we went to Gatlinburg. Hank had a little cabin up there that we didn't hide out in every once in a while and write songs. And uh, we go to Gatlinburg, man. And, and I think, uh, I think the idea for, for that, I think that might have been Hank's ideas, or Buddy Cannon. Buddy Cannon was one of the writers on that. And uh, Buddy, if you don't know who that is, he's uh, produces Kenny Chesney, and has you know pretty much since Kenny got going. And Buddy's a great writer too. You know, played bass for Bob Lohman but way back in the day, and, and again, you know, just a great musician, songwriter, pretty darn good singer. And uh, we sit there, and, it, you know, if you've got a great idea, it usually doesn't take real long to write something, you know, when when you're really on it. And again, you know, I think it took an hour, hour and a half to write that song. And then when you've got Vern sitting there, the artist, you know, it's a lot easier to sit down and write with these artists than it is to play a guessing game. You know, like, what's he going to like? What doesn't he like, as far as music is concerned? But when you got the artist there with you, you know, you can pick their brain. And uh, it's it always makes it a lot
1: easier. You've had the opportunity to do some great things. You've been able to record your own albums. You've had the greatest singers of all time, as we just mentioned, people like Vern Gosden all the way to Chris Stapleton who've recorded your songs you've been able to travel to unique places is there something that you want to do that you haven't yet
0: you know i want to take my wife to ireland and scotland and do a little tour over there i'm of irish descent and i've never i've been to england never have made it to ireland but I want to go over there and take my wife over there and, and just hang out for a month and 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 see the country. And uh, what's funny is to make a real long story real short. I never met my dad till I was thirty four years old. I met him. He's up in near Gatlinburg, Tennessee, living there. Find out where he lives go up there and, uh, we meet and he says, you want to go for a drive? And I'm like, heck yeah, we go for a ride up to Gatlinburg Kitchen Forge and we pass the cemetery and he looks at me and he says, your grandmother and grandfather are buried in that cemetery. He said, your grandfather was a guitar player and a singer. And your grandmother played pipe organ in the church. And, you know, it answered a lot of questions. Like, where did I get this from? You know, he told me about all that. And, and, uh, I was born Larry Dean Flynn, F L Y N N. So that's where the Irish comes from. And then, uh, When I signed with RCA Records back in the 70s, mid-70s, I think, Jerry Bradley, who's in the Hall of Fame, Country Music Hall of Fame, signed me to my first record deal. And uh, he had a... Well, let me back up a little bit. I was adopted again when I was eight years, nine years old, and they changed my name to Dean Rutherford. Well, Jerry Bradley had a hard time pronouncing Rutherford. He'd call it Rutherford or something. (laughs) And so we're, I'm in his office one day and he, he said, man, I want to change your name. He said, I can't pronounce that darn Rutherford. And he picks up the phone book and he liked names with two of the same letters in them. You know, Waylon Jennings had. Two ends in it, whatever. And then so he picks up the phone book and he goes, "Ding, Dylan." <laughs> and he goes, "That's your name." And I'll be honest with you, I didn't ride Kreller for too much either. <laughs> and I said, "Man, I I love that." And uh, the following year, I had my name legally changed to Dylan. So that's how that got done.
1: Huh. I always wondered about that. <laughs> I'm glad you yeah. told us about that. This time that we're in this year of people being separated from each other has this been a more prolific time for you? Has it been a difficult time or what's it been like? It's been a mixed bag,
0: really. Uh in the beginning of COVID Like almost everyone else, no one knew really what the dangers of COVID were other than the Chinese, and they weren't about to tell anybody. You know? And then they spread it all over the world. It comes to America, our president, doing the best he can do, you know, trying to get all the information he can about it with Dr. Fauci and others. And and, uh, once it became apparent that this was something, if you're in your 60s and above, you do not want to get. Then it, it shut my wife and I down. I have a 40-foot fifth wheel that I toured with, and uh, it's parked in Roe Farm in Tennessee. And we spent the first three months in there, and I never left. Thank God we had plenty of of room out in the country to roam around in, but as far as going to town and being around people just would not do it. And then, uh, as time, even my children were afraid, you know, to come around Susie and I because they didn't want to surprisingly have COVID and then pass along to either one of us. So I didn't get to see my, I talked to my kids a lot and FaceTime, but I didn't, get to see them, you know, at all for a while. And, and, uh, I had a grandson born during that time and it was tough. You know, you want to hold them as much as you can. And, and, uh, but yeah, it's been, I hadn't written anything since April, mainly because we've just been locked down. You know, I think I tried to zoom. A few songs with a couple of the writers, and that just did nothing for me. I mean, I'm the kind of guy that's got to be in the room with the person I'm writing with so we can pick each other's brain. You know, mental telepathy goes a long way when you're a songwriter. And, uh, just, just had no desire to write and, and, uh, was really, you know, like a lot of people, just, Overtaken with this COVID thing, man. Afraid to go anywhere. My wife did the grocery shopping. Didn't want me to go, you know. And it's been tough. It's, you know, it's it's swung around a little bit in the other direction now. You know, when you see what the end result is, as far as the numbers are, and and if you if you're careful, you know, you're not going to get it. But uh, you got to be darn sure well aware of your surrounding. So we're just holed up on our ranch in Colorado now, in Gunnison. And uh, it's actually pretty nice here because it's, I think this morning it was uh, 48 degrees. I think the high today is about 73. But it's been hot here this summer, extremely hot. You know, for, for where we live, we're 7,718 feet above sea level, and it's 89 and 90 degrees during the day and has been for like the last two months, and that just doesn't happen out here.
1: I want all the listeners to go to com. It's D-I-L-L-O-N. And my last question, you've had so many honors as we started the show the Country Music Hall of Fame, the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame, having this great documentary, Tennessee Whiskey, made about you. Is there a moment when you think about your life in music that shines the brightest?
0: The days with Hank. Yeah? The years I spent with Hank. You know, like I said before, man, he was like a dad to me and treated me like his son. You know, I, I feel like we wrote some of the best songs of my career. Oceanfront Property, The Chair, the Keith Whitley stuff that we wrote for Keith, Homecoming 63, Miami, Miami. You know, there was a run there of two weeks. I got up one morning on the boat and Hank said, we're going to Miami today. We're over in Green Turtle, Cuba, Hollis. And I'm like, heck, yeah, let's do We fired up the motors and and took off and uh, locked through over to Tampa and then went down to Miami. And when we got there, I had this idea called Miami, Miami loves me after all. And uh, we sat there and wrote that song the first day. And the second day, Hank was doing something, and one of our buddies, a guy by the name of Royce Porter, showed up. And Royce and I sat there and wrote a song called Homecoming 63. And then we wrote a few more things. And and that day after we got through writing, we took the boat up to West Palm and anchored off. And Royce had left. He'd just come in for a day. And and it's 4 o'clock in the morning. And we've been celebrating a lot of... A lot of good old Tennessee whiskey. And, uh, I looked at Hank and I said, well, excuse me, but I think you've got my chair." And he looked at me and he said, have you written that? And I said, no. He said, well, we're, we're going to right now. And, uh, we wrote the chair. It took a little while with the chair. I couldn't get an ending on the the melody ending on the course and hank gets up and he walks around the boat and he says we'll play this i played that and it worked perfect and then we got stuck on a second verse and uh as he often did got up walked around on the boat you know five o'clock in the morning pulling on his beard he had a long white beard walking around that boat and He walks in and looks at me and he says, well, how about this? Well, thank you. Can I drink you a buy? What I mean is, can I buy you a drink, anything you please? And I just went off. I thought, man, that's probably one of the most incredible (laughs) lines I've ever heard out of him. You know? So we wrote the chair. And then I get a call from George straight and he says, I'm cutting an album. Where are you at? And when are you coming back to Nashville? And I said, I'm not telling you where I'm at and I ain't coming back. <laughs> and Hank goes, well now hold on a minute. We need some money. <laughs> I said, all right, we'll go back. Cause I hated to leave the boat. I really did. Didn't want to, you know, Every once in a while, like I said, we go up to Gettinburg in the cabin, but other than that, I did not leave the boat. And uh, so we get to Nashville, put a demo session together of the songs we'd written, you know, in South Florida. And uh, I'm singing the vocals on the chair in the vocal booth, and I look around, and Hank's not there, and Roy's not there. And that's unusual, because Hank is usually the one telling me I'm flat or sharp or, need to do this or whatnot, you know, vocally. And so I asked the engineer, I said, where are those guys at? And he said, well, I think they're back there in the room writing a song. I said, well, not on my darn session without me. They're not. So I go in the room and and uh, Hank says, listen to this. And Royce played a little bit of this song. And Hank goes, what do you think? I said, boys, that's awful. I don't like it at all. And Hank goes, Would well, you want in on it or not? And I knew better. You know, I said, Well, yeah, I'll help you finish it. Well, that song was Oceanfront Property. So, in the span of two weeks, we wrote Homecoming 63, Miami, Miami, The Chair, and Oceanfront Property. Huh. I've never had a streak like that since. And I probably never will. But, uh, you know, that. That was, to me, was the highlight of my my musical career it was just the time that I spent with him because I learned so much, you know, and he set the bar so high when it came to lines in a song. You know, he just would not settle for anything less than stellar. And uh, it instilled in me that same purpose, that same drive. You know, when I wrote from that point forward, You know, when I wrote, if, you know, somebody's trying to slough off a line in a song, I just wouldn't hear of it. You know, we'd sit there and beat it till it came, you know.
1: Well, Mr. Dillon, I really, really appreciate you sharing with us.
0: Well, man, it's been my pleasure to be here, for sure. Good to talk to you again, Paul.
1: Absolutely. You're you're a great a great teller of tales. I enjoy hearing what you have to say. Again, congratulations on induction into the Country Music Hall of Fame.
0: You know, <laughs> it just I keep coming back to it. It's just so humble. You know, you never dream of anything like that, especially being a songwriter, you know. But uh I'll say this, I'm glad they voted me in. (laughs) It's been a, it's been a thrill of a lifetime, man. And, and they, they don't know the date on the induction ceremony yet, but that's usually in the fall. But until we get rid of this COVID, they're going to put it off until we can do it right. You know, they don't want to slide myself and both Cephas and Marty at all. We're just going to wait till things die down. And, and it's uh, feasible and plausible to do it. So, and I'm good with that.
1: Hmm.
0: You know, I, I I can't wait, but I can wait. You know <laughs> what I mean. But again, Paul, thank you so much. It's always good talking to you, my brother. Thank you, sir. And God bless you, and stay safe.
1: God bless you, and and tell Susie, thank you so much for helping set this up. Will do. All right. Have a great one. Until next time we see you down the road, brother. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Paul Leslie Hour. Hosted, written, and produced by Paul Leslie. Intro theme song, Alexander's Ragtime Band, written by Irving Berlin, performed by Dan Barrett. Outro scatting G-Things, improvised, performed, and produced by John Goodwin. Until next time. Goodbye.